Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And it's a very exciting episode today, because today's guest is not just a great comedy writer, not just a four-time champion on Jeopardy, but also a several-time excellent podcast guy with the former (laughs) Cracked podcast, One Way to Make an Emoji, in which you detail the process of submitting the bison emoji to Unicode. Very fascinating. Kurt Vonnegut's. And of course, secretly incredibly fascinating, Alex Schmidt is here. Welcome, Alex. George, that was very nice of you. Thank you. I also I <laughs> I want to get like what was that several time excellent podcast guy? I want to yep. get that on a, a banner or like one of those big <laughs> soccer fan scarves, you know, with the Hell words yeah. on it. Uh, I love it. <laughs> Hell yeah! It's well, it's the truth, and you deserve that scarf. <laughs> Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your relationship with horror? I'm very glad to be here. And I was, my only trepidation about doing it was that I am scared of a lot of horror movies. I <laughs> I have like, it's sort of like how picky kids have specific foods that they will or won't eat for their own <laughs> weird internal logic. And I, I'm like good at zombie movies. I'm good at anything with a sci-fi element, which which led to this movie, Sunshine. But uh, anything anything very like, satanic or magical really really freaks me out and i do i do pretty poorly with and i i think that in particular makes me someone who is sort of outside of the mainstream of maybe maybe most horror fans just because i have my own like like and and super super gross monsters can bug me i feel like i Mm -hmm. sound like i'm five but but you know what i mean (laughs) it's it's a it's my own particular things and this movie i i especially like because it's one i can consume i think that makes a lot of sense and i think that a lot of people feel that way about having subgenres that just kind of squick them out or whatever yeah so sci-fi is a a a favorite of yours in general and then this just kind of happens to uh subvert that in a horror direction and that's part of what you like about this exactly yeah yeah i especially don't like the satanic stuff because i feel like all the characters are just screwed like if (laughs) if satan is hunting you great like game over Uh, not (laughs) yeah what can you do uh there's nothing to talk about and and i for some reason i'm much more able to watch something where there's constantly steps going on there's constantly planning coping figuring it out going on and yeah. and this movie especially taps into that thing with like NASA type space stories where it's always <laughs> there's always like characters sitting down to be like okay if we put the thingy number 1 and the thingy number 2 admittedly everything depressurizes but then <laughs> but then we maybe survive and and you know i love those little like cat and mouse with with existing things for some reason that really works for me yeah i think that part of what appeals to me about that kind of thing as well is just that there is so much of man having to fend against his environment as well as other people because there's all yeah. the dynamics at play with all the other crew members, but space itself is so frightening and dangerous that the, if any single thing goes wrong, it could all be over for any of them, and they're at each other's throats creating that possibility. Yeah, yeah, space, we don't, we don't belong there at all. And so, like, like the, this movie, even if they didn't do the premise of the sun's dying, there's just such humongous stakes leaving the Earth. Like, there, it's already a story. Really great. Absolutely. And like you said, the movie we're talking about today is Sunshine, the 2007 banger written by Alex Garland of Best Horror Movies Ever Made, Annihilation, and 28 Days Later fame, and featuring the 28 Days Later collaborators, director Danny Boyle and star Killian Murphy. What a way to set yourself up for success with this crew, because that's just the start. 
Also among the cast, we've got Chris Evans, Michelle Yeoh, Rose Byrne, Hiroyuki Sonata, Benedict Wong, and Mark Strong. Incredible. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't watched this in a long time, and then when I rewatched it for this, I was like, oh, half these people are in Marvel movies now. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and many of them are famouser, and I... I'm a huge fan of the James Bond franchise, especially the Brosnan times, mm-hmm. even though there's probably not a good reason for that. But <laughs> I but you know, Michelle Yeoh is a key person in that, and so this was That's a right. this was a spaceship of friends, especially today. <laughs> People I'm excited to see. Absolutely. Yeah. So the script began as a pitch from Garland to Boyle about the heat death of the universe and what having the fate of the world on one person's shoulders could do to their head instigated by a scientific article projecting the future of humanity. And Danny Boyle loved this, and he he said that he had always wanted to direct a sci-fi movie that was actually set in space, so he took it to 20th Century Fox. I've never researched this movie, too. This is very exciting. Yeah. Well, get strap in. Yeah, and and I've and I've heard the show. I know you researched, so I was excited to find out. Yeah, <laughs> well, I love to hear that. And uh, they didn't they didn't want to touch it because they had just had a flop in the Solaris remake, and they felt that this oh. hewed a little too closely to that story. Which, not totally sure where they're seeing a ton of similarities besides just it takes place in space. But uh, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> I mean, it's in space, it's a film, it's in space. I, I just want it to be like a checklist that repeats the same two things forever. And they're like, yeah. you could stop. They're like, no, 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 in space, though. In space. You see? Yeah, there was one check mark that said Clooney, but that got scratched off. Right. <laughs> he could restart the sun with that grin. Am I oh, right? my gosh. Perfect. That's Ooh. the only brilliance we need, folks. <laughs> One star to another. Here we go. <laughs> Clooney to the sun. That's right. So Fox, 20th Century Fox was like, we're not going to distribute this under our, this banner, but we are interested in distributing it under Fox Searchlight. But even with that, Fox Searchlight was like, we're not going to actually fund it, just distribute it. <laughs> because the estimated budget of $40 million was too rich for their blood. So Boyle utilized UK tax breaks, lottery funds, and ingenious media to gather the money, and they got to work on pre-production. Wait, what's Ingenious Media? Is that a company? Yeah, they they, oh. they it's like a, a smaller film company, but they uh, it's like a third-party, not directly studio uh, production company kind of thing. That's that's one of those company names where it sounds like it's a, a term I haven't heard of or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. like and he employed his Ingenious Media. Like, it's a magic <laughs> card or something. You know? Really cool. Uh, hey, you know, it may well be as well. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like blue mana to me. <laughs> so pre-production began and they worked on the script for a year, taking 35 drafts to get it to where they were happy with it. Wow. Yes, certainly. Wow. And this entailed consulting plenty of actual scientists and futurists in particular, which I thought was interesting to include them as well. And this included uh, Brian Cox, a University of Manchester particle physician. Whoa. And, yeah. Cool. Another also famous Brian Cox. Not the Manhunter, though. <laughs> Is it a, there's a show called The Infinite Monkey Cage that uh, the physicist Brian Cox co-hosts. And uh, so maybe it's that guy. It is, I believe it is the one. And, oh, uh, he's great. He he was uh, very charming. He does the commentary as well on the on the DVD. Man, this is this is the one and only reason DVDs needed to stick around, or else streaming <laughs> services need to offer these things. Man, oh man. Hey, Criterion Channel is starting to do it, so hopefully oh. other people start getting on the train. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, good. 
I want to hear I want to hear Brian Cox's silky smart voice telling everything <laughs> about the film. That's great. Yeah. Now, what I thought was interesting uh, about this scripting process, especially considering they brought so many scientists and futurists in, is that Danny Boyle and company decided to allow for some of the inaccuracies, uh, inaccuracies that got pointed out to remain in the movie for the sake of entertainment and genre hallmark familiarity. And Cox himself said that he found it weird how many scientists were getting hung up on stuff like the slow-mo during zero gravity, uh, the whooshing spaceship noises, and the uh, sun to grab and be eaten away at by a cue ball, the theoretical blob of bosonic particles that would be stable against fission or evaporation. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on sort of the scientific accuracy and its place in a movie like this, where it's not necessarily trying to be a documentary, but is certainly uh, kind of wrapping in some of the real science. Wow. I think not knowing any of that, because I, I, I know very little... Yeah, physics uh, of of that kind and astrophysics, <laughs> but I think it's just such a workable premise to say the sun's running out of gas. Yeah, and I know it's not <laughs> gasoline, but that works so well that I was totally not bumping on fuzziness or or cheating with any of the yeah. details. That's fine. Like it, it doesn't bug me at all. I totally agree. Yeah, because <laughs> because I. I believe stars die, right? Like, that's a thing that happens. And sure. so it's just this sci-fi world where they figured out a bomb that can, you know, restart it like jumper cables on a car. Okay. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, I'm really not sweating anything else. <laughs> I do I do know that thing of, like, spaceships don't make a whoosh sound. And, I, yeah, I, I guess I just accepted that. Because that, yeah. that is, like fakey but also we're used to it from star wars so yeah that's just what sci-fi looks like these days <laughs> yeah you just want it to sound like a fun car or something and so there's a yeah. wish sound that's it <laughs> <laughs> for me i do think it's uh it is interesting and uh, you know there is that element of uh tarkovsky versus kubrick that i always talk about with the comparison between 2001 and solaris the original version where uh tarkovsky feels that kubrick is fetishizing technology and not really examining the source of conflict and so to mm. me the what what avoiding those little technical details that don't actually add to the movie does is it's not fetishizing the technology it's about what makes the the story communicate itself in an effective way so that everybody can engage with it not just every person who knows everything about physics and science oh cool i like that a lot yeah 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 ultimately it's about what kind of dramatic structure and situation can you do and and the other thing with this movie is like when it gets to the what i always think of as the horror part when it, we can do spoilers right pinbacker's sure, yeah. running around stabbing everyone and stuff like he's not realistic at all right, right? like the camera can't focus on him when in real life it could you know like sure. like he <laughs> so many elements of him are so out there that i'm not sweating exactly how the the sun's engine works it's it's fine. yes it's not a big deal exactly similarly to this uh, science aspect there were originally some romantic subplots that got nixed because danny found them quote embarrassing to be worrying about these plot lines when the stakes were so high and everyone was going through such intense uh psychological and physical pressure so i thought that was a funny comment from him oh and yeah i mean i want subplots plural Maybe it's mainly just Roseburn being in, in love with Jillian Murphy, which we get a sense of. Yeah, I think um, there's that. And then there was also something about in the um, it might have been like a, a, a triangle because in the backstory for Mace, it says that he mm. is uh, like in love with Cassie. So, OK, 
that would that would actually kind of ground them fighting early yeah. on. But uh, but also it you don't need it. It doesn't have to right. be a fight over a girl. It can be a fight over the mission or or over just we've been in this like incredibly high pressure death spaceship for a year and I'm freaking out. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who among us hasn't had a coworker who rubs us the wrong way on our high presser death spaceship after? So time? true. Oh you know? man, I hate when that happens. Yeah, <laughs> that's written on a coffee mug somewhere, right? Of course. Uh, so the crew did a few things to help prepare for the film at Boyle's behest, including living together during filming, participating in space and scuba training, touring nuclear submarines to get a sense of the cramped living conditions, and most importantly reading the book Moon Dust by Andrew Smith. And this book is a collection of stories from the men who've walked on the moon, which notably discusses the lasting psychological changes that these astronauts faced by their shifting uh, earthly perspective, something that clearly plays a role in this movie as well. Oh, that adds up. Yeah, there's a lot of overview effects, but in an extreme and different way all the time. Like, that's that's almost the whole premise of the movie, even beyond right. the sun restarting and a guy stabbing everybody. Yeah, exactly. This pre-production phase took another year, so they're up to two now, and then <laughs> a three months of filming, and then they had to take another full year to edit and complete the visual effects, which are numerous, 750 individual effects. Oh. But then on top of that, the usual way that special effects are done is they get broken out into several different effects farms. And this, uh, because Danny Boyle wanted to have a little bit more control over the exact way that it looked and a little more consistency through the whole thing, they utilized just one studio to do all of the effects for the, for the movie, which is why it uh, took another year. Oh, they like they focused on just this one team will do all of it. Right. Cool. And, and that's uncommon, I suppose. Like, yeah, they kind definitely. of farm pieces out to different people and they knock it out faster. Right. Yeah. Usually, or well, usually it's all about the speed that they can get it done and not necessarily about the creative consistency that follows the whole process. So, okay. Yeah. It does. I, <laughs> I like that it's almost, I don't know if you ever did like theater. I did high mm-hmm. school theater. I, I don't, I'm not trying to brag about a theatrical <laughs> background, but. But it's that there's that high school theater thing of like you're all in a little unit for that whole time and really, really doing this project together. And it sounds like it sounds like from the famous actors to the effects people, they really tried to, like, make it one team the whole way. That's cool. Yeah, definitely. And Danny said that after this movie, he was done with science fiction movies for a few reasons. First, he said that this one helped him conquer his fear of the difficulties of the genre, specifically how much time it takes, how much effort you have to put into the special effects and everything. But more importantly, that he found it to be spiritually exhausting to constantly have to face the uncaring nature of the universe. And this was, in fact, the case for multiple members of the crew, with Killian Murphy becoming an atheist due to his involvement with the film and his preparatory studies. Wait, like he lost religion. Well, he said that he was an agnostic prior and that he just was like, this movie, it's solidified. I'm out of here. Wow. Yeah. Okay. See, this This is, see, I was never in a high school play about the death of the entire universe. That's the trick. I was, a, <laughs> I was in comedies from the mid 20th century where you never have any of these feelings. Okay. Mm. I see. <laughs> That's incredible. See, this is this is why my high school was really great, because we did the drowsy chaperone and then went right into restarting the sun to save the earth. <laughs> but it's like that Simpsons Planet of the Apes musical, like everyone's singing all the time. Like, <laughs> Get out of my face, Mace, I'm restarting the sun. Like, just... <laughs> 
dance and stuff. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and the movie finally released in the UK on April 6th and saw a much more limited release in the US on July 20th, opening in just 10 theaters across LA, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and Boston, oh. and ultimately making only $32 million uh, after, on a $40 million budget. But Man. the reception was mostly positive from critics and has even been declared the best horror movie ever made right here on this show. So there you go, <laughs> folks. <laughs> the ultimate critical buzz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So it, like, even... Cause I've heard... You know more about this than me. But I've heard of the thing where people will say, like, oh, it earned more in ticket sales than its budget, but it still lost money from marketing and stuff. But this one just lost money. Like, right. they made less money than it cost. Yeah, the whole way through. Man. <laughs> It has done pretty well on home media, according to its sales there. Uh, it's possible that it's, uh, it's over time made its money back. It was only the other $8 million, But it has also gotten a lot more people coming back to it and being like, no, this is actually really great, especially as Alex Garland has become more famous himself, oh, yeah. uh, moving from writing into directing as well. So people have definitely revisited this and... Uh, you know, come back to it to say, oh, I actually do like this a lot. It extra feels like a movie that, you know, like I watched it at home and we have a television now, so I had a reasonably big screen to watch it on. But this, it's kind of a submarine movie. Like when you said that was part of the <laughs> prep was submarine stuff and submarine crew behavior. Like as much as there are these huge shots of the one ship and the other ship and, and some really spectacular special effects, a lot of the rest of it is running around corridors trying to not die. And and yeah. <laughs> you can just you can just fire this up at home. Like like didn't Alex Garland end up with that with Annihilation? Like everybody watched it at home in the US. And yeah. it works fine. Yeah, exactly. This, this one I think even more than Annihilation probably. Yeah. Uh, I would agree with that. I think that uh he does a really great job of, of making movies that feel uh like they have a large scale but still keeping the focus pretty tight so that you don't lose track of what your entire storyline is. Yeah. Yeah, especially I guess those are both doom movies especially. But uh, but then like, man, now I'm just trying to remember all his stuff. Did he do Ex Machina? That's that's just another sure very did. straightforward premise that makes sense and the world is not exploding. Love that There's one. Fun robots. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but who knows what she's going to do once she makes it yeah, out of there. That's true. Probably <laughs> <laughs> take over is my bet yeah or probably do a musical right that's what everybody's doing these days <laughs> we can only hope <laughs> we're gonna take a quick break but we'll be right back to the show whoa an ad don't freak out just wanted to let everybody know about the cool posters we now have for the best little horror house in philly a horror house party and everyone was invited Friend of the pod and incredible artist A.T. Pratt, who you may remember from the Eraserhead or You Are a Shark episodes, put together an amazing poster with at least one reference to every movie we've covered as the best on this podcast. You can check them out at littlehorrorphl.com forward slash shop, but also patrons can get a 15% off coupon, which is basically the cost of the month of Patreon. So, you know, that's an option too. Uh, I think the posters are rad as hell. Check them out, see how many you can name, and now, back to the show. So to get into the actual movie, I really love this cool transition from the Fox Searchlight production card as the lights fade and the sun becomes a distant glow instead. It's a really cool way to utilize uh, what could have just been very boring, um, and it instead fades right into the movie. Uh, we're informed of the current situation which is specifically that the Icarus mission was sent to restart the sun, which has been dying, leaving Earth in a perma-winter. Unfortunately, it was a failure before it even reached the sun, and the Icarus 2 
has just left to explode uh, a solar. Uh, I don't. It might not even have been solar. It was some. It was basically boils down to a nuke in the sun and get it firing again, which would be humanity's last choice. And I love, love, love this choice of the name Icarus for the ship. Very deliberate choice to keep things kind of nihilistic and and you know this hubris of man coming too close to the sun, which is sort of what Pinbaker is also talking about in terms of like, uh, it's, we're meant to return to dust and everything. Just a lot of cool stuff happening right up top. Yeah, absolutely. And and all the science in this movie, it is very, very easy to understand in a way that it should not be in a in a whole space mission to restart the sun thing. Like it just <laughs> it's pretty straightforward and then and yeah, even that mythological name, it's just like, oh right, sun stuff. I even recognize that. I'm following. Yeah. Yeah. It's very approachable for being the movie it is. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I also think that one thing that does help to keep it kind of approachable besides just keeping the science stuff relatively uh, approachable is they keep using this like imagery of eyes. And I think that someone coming to the movie and maybe not being a huge sci-fi fan, but being able to see that they are doing something that and be like, oh, this is a filmic element that is not so reliant on my intelligence, but is more just like something that I can appreciate as a beautiful moment. And the amount of like the ship creating the shape of the pupil, turning the sun into a, a, a ever a watchful eye at the very beginning, but so many times throughout the entire movie, there's a lot of eye imagery that I, I really love. Right. Even yeah, when people are throwing on aviators in the observation room to look at the sun, like that's wacky. And it makes total sense <laughs> to me. And I would kind of see myself doing it at some point if I was in this weird situation, you know, like yeah. it just adds up in a way that's very smooth to me. Now, the crew of the Icarus 2 is discussing their next move, specifically that they're entering the communications dead zone earlier than expected, so they'll be completely on their own within 24 hours. And as such, the crew is on edge, with a fight breaking out between Mace and Kappa, Chris (laughs) Evans, and Killian Murphy. And through these first handful of minutes, I also really like the ship's design as we've gone past the oxygen garden, the observation deck, which you've mentioned, the earth room for relaxation, all these classic sci-fi stuff that I'm like, yes, show us these cool things in the ship that we don't get to have. But I like that it is not the focus of the movie. It's something that we pass through uh, multiple times and we get to know the ship, but it never feels, again, like that fetishization. Yeah, that's right. It even I even like how the ship is mostly a bomb. Like, it's just this humongous solar shield and bomb, and then there's a little... It's like if they took one of the connects pieces out of the International Space Station. That's the entire rest of the ship. It's just like a yeah. stick plugged into the back of it. Yeah, and they pass Mercury, leaving just the finish line in sight. But as they do, they pick up a strange radio transmission, the Icarus One's distress beacon. Mm-hmm. Now, it's possible that someone or someone's could have still survived this time during this time, but Mace speaks up to say that it's absurd to even consider going after them in lieu of completing the mission. Now, Psych Officer Searle agrees that there are a lot of potential drawbacks, but as the entire mission is theoretical, it may be worth the risk in order to grab a second payload in case the first doesn't work. Now, this is such an interesting moment for me where they reveal that the entirety of the mission is hinging on a 45% chance of this uh, projection being accurate. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's just so shocking. And and it's, I think it really does a great job of communicating how desperate this situation is. 
they're like, we have literally mined all fissile material from Earth. This is, <laughs> there is nothing yeah. else to do. <laughs> right. It is. The Earth being like out of bombs is such a wonderful concept to me. I don't know. I, <laughs> I like me and me and the wonderful Michael Swaim. We did a, a new podcast about Slaughterhouse Five, and there's an amazing sequence in that where one of the characters sees World War Two in reverse. And so, if you see it in reverse, like the bomb material gets placed back into the Earth where it can't hurt anybody. You know, wow. I was just really liking the other. The, the other angle of that of we took all the bomb material out and we <laughs> shot it at the sun back here now the we just have bomb. like food and blankets and clothes and stuff uh, a couple buildings that's it yeah <laughs> it's the very opera house is still standing that's all we know yeah one opera house right yeah yeah <laughs> that night the crew is roused by an alarm though kappa is already awake from a nightmare and it turns out that when trey was setting the new coordinates for the slingshot in order to get to this um this Icarus one, which uh, by the way, Kappa did determine that it was worth it because they want to have the second option. And it turns out that when Trey was setting the new coordinates, he didn't account for the new angle of approach and didn't adjust the solar shields. And this is where, in addition to some of the, the fighting and everything, we can see just how much these people are, are feeling the weight of this. You know, Trey is like breaking down in, in this moment. He's crying. He's sitting there. He's saying, I fucked up. Like, I'm sorry. And and everyone else is just kind of like standing there. Like, what do you even say to that? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like one of them takes out a management book. Like, surely <laughs> there's a tip in here, right? You just go to the index. Yeah. <laughs> Almost destroyed the entire spaceship. <laughs> yeah. The index for sun, like SS yeah. sun. Mm, there's nothing there. There's okay. There, I see in my copy. There's actually a few things we have to go: sun, comma, starting, finishing, <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of different stuff. Mm, sunscreen doesn't help here. Yeah. But good idea. Should do always do it. Wear sunscreen. Good. Yeah, that's right. That's the other. Space is terrible, and also the sun is terrible. I feel like this movie has a very strong and good stance on how bad the sun is. It's bad to be in a situation where you're depending on the sun, which we are all in all the time. It's not great. Yeah. It's a very <laughs> fickle and burny thing, and I don't like it. Yeah, so true. Yeah. I don't I don't care for it either, myself. <laughs> yeah. That joke where Mr. Burns says, like, man has always wanted to kill the sun. Yeah. He's <laughs> it's right. It's true. Kill it. That's why we launched all the fissile material at it. <laughs> yeah, blow it up. Yeah. <laughs> now, Captain Kaneda volunteers to go out and check the damage as the sensors have been completely burnt out. But it's a two-person job, so Mace volunteers Kappa as punishment for his decision. This freaking guy. <laughs> I have to say, I really do love Chris Evans's performance in this movie. I think that when he gets to do like weird sci-fi stuff like Snowpiercer and this, that he really does thrive in it. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's 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 very good in this. And good in like I, I feel like he often has a a upbeat boy scouty thing going on even when everyone's sad on the death spaceship but i think it like he plays against it well with this it's a it's a very yeah. nice like and, and everyone's sad in the snowpiercer train too but but <laughs> there it's like obviously he's the hero though and here it's like obviously he's still going to be the guy to like kind of come through in the end even though he's mad at all his colleagues and this stinks you know yeah in they go to their spacesuits. Very cool design again. Bright gold leaf for shielding and actually called the Kenny suit because it was inspired by the shape of Kenny's hoodie in South Park, 
which adds to the confinement <laughs> feeling when they have just a strip for their eyes instead of a huge opening. Uh, it's the best ominous name. Yeah. A famously <laughs> killed character in every episode. Uh- <laughs> All right, everyone into your Kenny suits. (laughs) I'm sick of working. I'm putting on my Cartman suit. I'm going to have some snacks. I'm going to be nice to nobody. Taking a break. I'm going to the Cartman suit. There are four damaged panels, it turns out, and they get to repairing. But as the shields move in order to let them get at it and block them from the sun, it reflects the light and the sun tears through the oxygen garden and starts a fire which causes the ship to revert to its original rotation and puts the men outside at extreme risk while they're now also having to worry about their supplies and damage inside as well. Classic sci-fi to have these sort of uh, avalanching uh, problems start to snowpile, and it's great. It's great. Yeah, it's all Apollo 13 in a lot of ways that I think are very effective, and, and also not derivative of that movie or anything, and and that's a real thing that happened, but... Yeah. but it's there's just constantly a progression of problems that they're dealing with in a way that moves it forward it's great it's so funny to me even at like the very end when killian murphy's character like trips and he's just like oh god i lost so much blood i have to pick myself up now too (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) first my blood goes then Yeah, just, uh, just all these things that stack up. And Corazon is des- devastated at the loss of her beloved garden, and mm. Captain Kaneda sends Kappa back inside while he finishes the repair job. And the shield finally snaps back into normal position, and Kaneda burns up. A tragic sacrifice, and does call back to his being intrigued by Cyril's staring into the sun at the beginning of the movie, especially when Cyril's is begging Kaneda to explain what he sees out there. Yeah. That undercurrent, I, my memory of this movie was that all of the madness and the horror kind of comes out of nowhere. But watching it again, there is there is more setup of everyone losing their minds, and in particular, Cliff Curtis's character just being obsessed with like, what happens if I keep looking at the sun like a <laughs> lot, man? Like I'm right here. There's no atmosphere in the way. I just. <laughs> And so, like, as your captain is burning up to be like, but like, tell me if God's there. It's like really interesting as a as a whole thing, and and sets up Pinbacker great. Definitely does. Definitely does. Also, Cliff Curtis really fantastic in this movie as well. Yeah, really cool. Now Trey is horrified at this entire situation and feels like it's his fault. And in fact, it is his fault. But that's not a nice thing to say. So they all just kind of are like, oh, okay, Trey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Searle declares him a suicide risk and sedates him. Mm-hmm. But despite this, the the it's all in motion already. <laughs> the ripples continue to accumulate, and now that the garden is destroyed, they don't have the oxygen to reach the payload release point. And comms officer Harvey, now acting command, continues their path towards Icarus 1. Now, huge shift from Kaneda to Harvey in terms of leadership style. <laughs> he... Uh, Harvey did not read that book that I have with the management tips for the sun. And um, he is a, a, a real kind of a jerk, very self, uh, self-interested self throughout the whole thing. And it is kind of, again, seeing the way that this accumulates, but even just the way that the dynamics change when someone else is put in charge, it's just, there's so many little things building up to, to make this pressure build and build and build. I've seen this movie a couple times now. And when Harvey is now in charge of the ship, I still thought 
Chris Evans was second in command somehow. I think it's just because he's Chris <laughs> Evans. But like, yeah. it took me it took me some beats to figure out that that guy Harvey was second in command because he really doesn't feel like it in a way that is effective. <laughs> like they did a good yeah. job of making the movie, and that's why. Yeah. Oh man, I love when Chris Evans is like, "You're the comms officer on a ship with no communications." Yeah. <laughs> Now, Harvey, Kappa, Searle, and Mace go to search the Icarus 1, while Cassie and Corazon stay on board uh, the Icarus 2 with Trey. They split up to cover more ground while exploring. Very funny joke about Alien here, where they're like, oh, if we split up, we're going to get picked off one by one by an alien. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they've seen movies in the movie. It's good. (laughs) Yeah. And they find a few things of note. Firstly, and importantly, the ship is almost completely operational, especially the O2 garden, which has grown unchecked for seven years. A huge relief, because this is something they had feared as a risk of heading for the Icarus 1 in the first place, was doing this to get to a wreck. They also check out the ship's log and find the final transmission was a wild, rambling message from the former captain, Pinbaker, and it reveals some shocking news. Uh, First of all, that he is completely burned up and that he feels like this mission is spitting in the face of God, who has determined that it's our time to return to the dust. Very intense. (laughs) That's leadership, folks. That's that's how you get everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you get buy-in. You know what I mean? You have a team, lots of competing priorities. Tell them God wants us all to return to dust. And then then you're going to hit Q4, you know? And this way, you can keep passing the buck and be like, no, this is God's decision. He right. wants us to return the dust. I don't think we should, but I just got to do what he says. <laughs> so it's Jacob and uh, Isaac all over again. <laughs> Look, I think he should provide a ram at the last second, but I don't know. Look, I, I that's just me. Yeah. Hey, I think you're right. <laughs> Now, this transmission is revealed to have come right around the time that they were supposed to deliver the payload, which Kappa determines uh, simultaneously is good to go. The real issue is that the one thing wrong with the ship is the mainframe of the flight computer, which is important as well for two reasons. First, it shows signs of sabotage. And two, second even, it means delivering the payload of the Icarus 1 is impossible. Big, this is this is not good news for them. And... They find the crew of the Icarus One finally as well, in the observation room, burned to death from the unfiltered exposure to the sun, when suddenly the two ships explosively decouple, both literally and figuratively. This huge burst kind of throws everyone off, and there's a huge breach in the hull, and now they're not connected anymore. So we have our two groups on completely different ships. Yeah, and that the burned-up crew of the first ship is like low-key maybe the spookiest scariest part of the movie like they look like pompeii roman victims you know it was really i forgot how uh, astonishing it is how they did that yeah and it's really fascinating to me because the way that they're positioned in there it almost kind of looks like maybe they went a little sun crazy too because it doesn't look like it was like a struggle it looks like they're all just sitting there on the bench together very very eerie yeah they said it's like they sat down to hold hands like it's really Terrifying, yeah. Yeah. Now, Kappa is getting put in the lone spacesuit so that he can get back by launching across the gap with the decompression, but Harvey freaks out in the face of death and demands that he be the one to go back since he's the captain now. 
The rest of them convince him to chill a little bit by wrapping him in the protective casing of the airlock until they realize that one of them has to stay behind and operate the lock from the inside. And again, this paranoia and fear of the whole movie really comes to a point where he starts going like, oh, you think it's going to be me, right? This, again, terrible captain, bad leadership all around. No good, Harvey. (laughs) Read the book. Read the book. Um, I did read that the reason that this uh, guy is such an asshole is because he was uh, named after Harvey Weinstein. Um, that's what Danny Wait, Boyle says. Really? So yeah, because he was um, he like was a he was really I forget what movie Boyle produced. Oh, a Train Spotting. He did um, Train Spotting mm. for the Weinstein's, and then uh, apparently Harvey was not so nice to him and uh, played uh, played havoc with what he wanted to. Uh, force him to edit it in different ways and everything creatively. So uh, they said this was their little homage to old uh, Harvey Weinstein here. Man, what an Easter egg. Yeah. Right. It's really tucked in there. <laughs> <laughs> and it all comes around to him in the end because when he gets launched out, he bounces off something on the way over, flies off into the void of space, freezing and then shattering. <laughs> Kappa and Mace get into the airlock relatively safely. <laughs> yeah, they really, they really lingered on him. That happening to him. Satisfying scene, in my opinion, <laughs> for him yeah. to go out there and get his comeuppance. And now I'm wondering if it's because they were mad at that Hollywood monster in real life, too. So <laughs> yeah. that adds up. Yeah. Could be. Could be. Now, they say goodbye to Cyril, who kills himself like the rest of the crew, by staring into the sun just as he had been so tempted all along. I think this is, again, very uh, interesting sign of his, like, madness and the desperation of the mission and everything but uh it's just a a fun little moment i did think it was interesting that he does not respond to the crew at all when they're all saying goodbye yeah i mean everybody if if people have never heard of the overview effect it's just a really interesting thing to read about and it has been documented with especially like the first astronauts who you know are leaving an earth that's going fine to go on an adventure and then come back but just the ex- the impact of seeing the Earth from that angle and everything, it really impacts them psychologically. So like, I feel like this movie takes some leaps with how the mission and the sun impact people, but also it's still like plausible enough that it works. Like, like they, they could all just totally lose their minds or humanity or whatever else in the process of everything we've just described. <laughs> right. <laughs> Any one of those things would have been plenty. <laughs> yeah. Plus, most of them don't get to date Rose Byrne or Chillian mm. Murphy. Right? So true. They're left out. (laughs) Now, they determine that the uncoupling was manual, and Mace says they have to consider that Trey did it. Kappa doesn't believe it because of how he blamed himself, plus the drugged-up state that he's been in, but Corazon says, now that they're down two breathers, if they get rid of Trey, they'll still have the oxygen to complete the uh, mission. Now, talk about cutthroat here. You know, this, this mission at all costs, it's really hard to be like... She's right in a way like this is truly all of humanity against one guy. And it is very fucked up for them to not like give him a chance to uh, have a a say in whether he's uh, going to sacrifice himself. But they do think that he's the one who did this. And uh, it's it's a very bleak moment where they're all like, we just got to kill this guy. So we have enough oxygen. Yeah. And that that hierarchy, too, of, like, Chillian Murphy's character knows how to run the bomb. Mm-hmm. So he, get, he gets to live as we make all these decisions, no matter what. Like, they, they pretty simply and economically lay out, like, who, 
who gets chosen to live or die depending on which role they play on the ship, which is yeah. dark too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Mace says that he'll be the one to do it. But Cassie refuses to acquiesce on what was decided to require unanimous consent. And then they're all just like, uh, actually, there's nothing else we can do. So sorry, Cassie. Yeah. <laughs> really messed up. And Mace goes to do the deed. And I love this shot where uh, he pulls out the drawer and two of the scalpels are missing already. And you're immediately like, oh, no, something is awry. Oh, I didn't I didn't notice that. That's amazing. What a hint. Yeah. They're they're great and and it's it's even more funny because so I couldn't remember if Pinbaker like had a weapon or not and so when um, they show well they show Trey on the ground here because uh, he has in fact actually already killed himself with one of these scalpels um, <laughs> and I was looking around I was like does he have two is Pinbaker already like on board and messing stuff up with the other scalpel and then when you see him have the second scalpel later it all clicks back in and you're like oh man great movie (laughs) (laughs) now kappa and mace start fighting when mace blames kappa for all the deaths thanks to his decision to divert the mission but all they can do is continue and try and conserve oxygen by not fighting anymore yeah yeah the budgeting there is just (laughs) and again this is a business podcast folks a lot of times your employees are going to request oxygen it's Mm -hmm. a very common uh what should we call it, George? A complaint? A complaint of employees. They're like, I want to breathe, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you just can't let all of them have it. And I think this movie right. takes a very firm stance on that. Mm-hmm. That's right. Everyone, you take a few breaths here, and you have to hold off. <laughs> right. Because this is, we have a limited, uh, there's a scarcity of oxygen. And, you know, the people up top, they got to have all their oxygen. So Yeah. The, the Immortal Joe in his Tower of Oxygen gets to have the <laughs> most, because he built the tower. <laughs> And that's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Now, the real problem is that the oxygen is running even lower than it should be, and they don't know why. And the Icarus still insists that there are five crew members on board uh, with an unknown visitor currently in the observation room. Very scary. So spooky. We're all out here like, who could it even be? They're in the vacuum of space. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when they go to check it out, the sun is bright as hell, and inside the room, a voice asks if Kappa is an angel, before monologuing about how at the end of time, there will be one man left alone with God. And when Kappa grabs the man, it reveals him to be completely burned in a way uh, that was actually inspired by Nicky Lauda's F1 injuries, and he realizes that this Uh. must be Pinbacker, and Pinbacker uses the second missing scalpel to slash Kappa in the guts. Wow. Yeah, they... Yeah, they they were really thoughtful about all those little details and items and things. Like, I also feel like the spaceship has aged pretty well because it's been mm-hmm. some years now, and like yeah. the the technology of it and the design of it looks like pretty fresh for this being a movie from two thousand seven. So like, and even even down to the burns on the guy and stuff, they really like took their time. It's really cool. Yeah, I really agree, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on. We kind of touched on this a little earlier, but the usage of the camera with. Pinbaker and sort of the break from reality that happens in this movie where it can't focus on him and it's there's like these uh, pulls on him and and uh, shaking and everything yeah and I think that it's really interesting and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on if you think that this is a benefit to the horror elements of it or a hindrance to it in in terms of uh you know maybe making it a little harder to focus on versus creating that uncertainty that's a cool question i 
I think it's a benefit, and I also think it's a big ask of the audience. It's sort of the, the other movie I was thinking of is Interstellar, which I love. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great movie, but it's that's that's almost the love story version of <laughs> this kind of movie, and uh, <laughs> and it just starts taking big leaps in the the later half of it, and yeah. I think you get a really rich experience if you decide to go with it. But they're, yeah. they are just asking the audience to do that with no like enticement, you know, <laughs> like, like I, I could easily see somebody being like, no, that's stupid. I'm done. And it's like, yeah. I mean, fair, you know, sure. Yeah. And it, it's funny that it is like such a shift an hour and change into the movie. Like this is not early, yeah. early days. It, it, it's a, a very interesting shift for how late it happens as well. Yeah. Yeah. He's like a it's like the he's like a rage virus monster who also has a um weirdly more grounded cosmology and belief about how the universe works and then also yeah. the camera can't even focus on him and his his <laughs> body parts are coming off in a way where you think he would just die and uh there's a lot there's a lot of leaps happening in a cool way yeah that's also part of the kind of break from reality moment where Pinbaker doesn't seem to be as affected by the elements as some of these other people were. You know, uh, Kappa runs out the room, turns the sun up to full, and Pinbaker is still right on his heels. You know, <laughs> the sun doesn't seem to do anything to him yeah. because of these seven years I spent talking to God. <laughs> right. He. It's, <laughs> it's like how a lot of James Bond villains will have one henchman who's just really big. <laughs> and then that guy, just anything can happen to him until he's like fully thrown into a jet engine or something. But this sure. movie like even skips that. It's just like if if Jaws or Stamp or whoever like climbed out of the jet engine and was like, I am still coming, you know? Like, <laughs> so if, if the audience fails at that point, I don't blame them. But I, I think sticking with it works. I totally agree. <laughs> Kappa does make it to a safe location, but is still bleeding. And Pinbacker leaves Kappa there to go sabotage the mainframe again. In the remnants of the O2 garden, Corazon finds a baby plant and is psyched as hell, only Mm. to get stabbed from behind by Pinbacker. Another really tragic moment where it's like, oh, maybe things could restart if they, like, gathered up and revitalized the oxygen garden and uh, really took their time. But even that little last gasp of hope. The, the thought that not everything had been destroyed like they feared, even if it's more of a symbolic victory than a, a, a real one. Right at the end, she, she, she gets stabbed in the back. It's really brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that living plant is almost an interstellar jump where something mm-hmm. it's basically magical that that's still alive. <laughs> as far as I can tell, I'm not a spaceship garden grower, but it, that seems to me to be totally impossible. <laughs> Get a little <laughs> of this guy, not a spaceship garden grower. I know. I'm all thumbs and not green ones, folks. <laughs> not green ones. It's tough. So the rest of the crew is finally starting to notice things are wrong. Although at this point, that's just Cassie and Mace. She runs into Pinbacker and has to hide while Kappa is able to warn Mace. Uh, Mace dives into the coolant to try and save the mission, which also lets Cassie take advantage of Pinbacker's surprise as the lights start to come back on and attacks him. Now, Mace warns Kappa that he has to detach the payload manually, and he dives back in one last time to fix things. But as he leaves, his legs get caught, and he freezes to death, but not before begging Kappa to finish it. And this is, you know, speaking of these Bond villains that take a lot to finally croak, 
this dude is diving in and out of this freezing cold cooling in and out. And then finally, it's not until he gets trapped there that he finally perishes. It's a very heroic thing for him to do and really kind of bring the character back around as a hero instead of, uh, you know, because he has been the grump the whole time. But you see that it is uh, all in all in the spirit of the mission, at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, every everybody. It's a very interesting dramatic situation where everybody's on board with the mission and they're mad at each other so (laughs) so so they have fights about stuff and then stick together and it all feels earned yeah yeah now kappa blows the airlock out towards the sun and one final challenge as he trips like i said and he's struggling to get back up but he pushes through detaching their section of the ship so that they all hurtle towards the sun with the payload pinbacker attacks but capra rips the skin off his arm also very gross. <laughs> yeah. I was glad for the lack of focus in that moment, too. <laughs> Just for my own comfort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. This obviously gives uh, him enough time to get to the bomb and arm it. Not Pinbacker's arm, but arm the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> now, they all explode, but since time and space are so fluid here, which they did talk about that... Part of the reason that the bomb might not work is because of the the no one knows what happens when you pass through the sun. It's all a weird mishmash of density and all kinds of crazy stuff happening. So they 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 go in there. Kappa uses his last few moments to accept the oncoming light, becoming enveloped by it as he reaches out and touches the surface of the sun. Wow. Yeah, that's also that's interesting because that that felt like another leap and go with it and it's cool thing. And maybe there is some science to like time dilating or something. And that's actually medium to small realistic. I don't know. I I like that added thing and I'm good with it just being this is the part in Interstellar where there are a bunch of rooms and (laughs) strings between them and it's fine. You know, like cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this also does a great job of bringing things kind of full circle in that it's the very beginning moments of the movie that the the psych officer is talking about how the difference between darkness and the, and light is that you are separate from the darkness, but you become one with the light. And this is hmm. very much seems to be what Kappa is doing here. Yeah, how about that? How and- about that? <laughs> And just achieving any emotional moment at all in a scene where a guy falls into the sun, but they they did like he has his he has his street nightmares where he falls into it, and then a more positive experience of the real thing, and wow. you're like, cool. I'm glad him and the sun kind of worked it out, you know, <laughs> like so true, so true. They they earned it. Those crazy kids. Yeah, no one thought the two of them could be partners as cops on the streets, but look at them, <laughs> look at them riding in the car together now. <laughs> One's a physicist. One's a giant ball of plasma. (laughs) I'm the good cop, and he's the bad cop in the sense that he incinerates you immediately. We will not get any information out of you, actually. Uh (laughs) Wow. Police brutality is out of control. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Back on Earth, Kappa's sister listens to his message that he sent right at the beginning while her kids play in a snowscape by the Sydney Opera House, and suddenly... The light of the sun becomes stronger. Mission accomplished. They did it. What a fun, hopeful ending for this movie. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's just a, a great little moment for for everyone involved. Yeah, I like that they weren't too cool for a happy ending. You know, yeah, like they just went ahead and did it. Cool. I love that. I also love that 
you know, we get the Earth Room, which is meant to simulate relaxing situations on Earth. But this is the first time that we have seen Earth in the movie. Oh, yeah. Right. I, I love that. They're, they're just completely focused on space, that this is not a habitable environment. It's it's so lost that they're just not even going to waste the time looking at it uh, until we can have the hope of, of the sun coming back. I, I really like this ending a lot. Never thought of it that way. Yeah, wow. And now, Alex, we've reached the part of the show <laughs> where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is the best horror movie ever made, whatever that means to you. And so, for someone who is the ultimate scare connoisseur, this might not be the best horror movie. But for you, why is this the best horror movie ever made? Oh, for a second, I thought you were saying I was the ultimate scare connoisseur. That's just a bit. Uh, but uh, no, I I think it's a really special version of a lot of different things. I think it really benefits from... Danny Boyle trying to make a lot of different kinds of movies all the time because it's it ends up being different than the usual slasher. The slashing is sudden and also grounded and and different than what you've seen. And watching it in 2021, it's it's really interesting to see a movie where like there's a primary problem of restarting the sun and and also surviving space to the point where the the insane slasher man is just like I will deal with it too whatever like <laughs> like <laughs> and I, I don't know I I I'm feeling hopeful about the world and also we've had a uh, some recent time where there's like multiple concurrent problems going on you know and that that felt interesting to see represented in a horror movie because I feel like so many horror movies focus on one big bad problem and and this is like a grounded creative exciting way of doing a lot of bad things all at once uh, and just a really well and thoughtfully put together way. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that this is the best horror movie ever made because it is such a fascinating combination of what I would still consider to be a horror movie with just a more science-based environmental horror. But cool. yeah. for it to then merge with a slasher in a really interesting way so late in the game and have the slasher really, as you say, function more as a secondary antagonist just pushing the mission forward than the actual big bad is something that I don't think really gets done very often. And it's not just done in this, but done extremely well. Yeah. I think that the casting is incredible. I think that mm -hmm. the performances are all great. I think that the way that it is writ and shot, also fantastic. Everyone in this movie is doing so much with what they are, are putting into it. And I think that it also really reminded me of Silent Runnings, which is a, another old sci-fi movie that has to do with environmentalism. And oh, cool. in, in that one, it's, it's much more about like um, Earth is fucked. And so all of the plant life got put in space so that we could re-bring it down to Earth when things got fixed. And then um, the problem is that this is an American Airlines spaceship, and so American Airlines decides, no, we're going to go back to capitalism, and, and so they start destroying all the plant life in there, and it's about um, uh, the main character, Bruce Dern, trying to uh, save his plant pals with the help of two robots, uh, so people should check that out if they like this movie as well. I... <laughs> It sounds great. I'm in the in the short term. I'm wondering if it's literally owned by American Airlines in the movie, or if you're just doing a joke about American Airlines. No, it is literally American Airlines. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, man, George had like a bad flight recently or something. Like, 
<laughs> Look, that's neither here nor there, American. <laughs> I'm sorry you spent some night in Dallas. It's just sometimes they get stuck. Uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so that's a very fun movie, and and wow. to me, cool. this this feels sunshine feels like a very cool continuation of these sci-fi horror movies that really do an awesome job of not only exploring the vacuum of space, but our own human hubris and the way that we can be our own worst enemies. I think that that is something that sci-fi horror does better than almost anything. And uh, I, I just love yeah. it. And I think that this is the very best example. So uh, Sunshine is the best horror movie ever made. And Alex is a wonderful podcast guy multiple oh. times over who uh, now is plug time. So you can tell everyone all about those wonderful podcasts and anything else you got going on as well. George, man, this is a treat. Thank you. And I, I would love it if people checked out my weekly podcast called Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. It's a show where every week we take one thing that people think is ordinary uh, like there's going to be an upcoming one about spoons, just spoons. <laughs> and we oh, get yeah. into the history and the science and the stories and why those are amazing and why those are more exciting than you ever realized. And it's me doing a bunch of research and then comedian guests coming in and being funny with me as we talk about it. And so I, I hope people check it out. I think it's great. Uh, I agree that it's great. I'm very much looking forward to the most recent episode, which features um, Jeff Rubin and friend of the show, Cody Ziegler. So uh, there you go. Oh. Can't wait to check that one out. Yeah, they're they're. Both awesome. And, uh, yeah, we talked about keyboards on that one, if people want to find yeah. it. Oh, and again, the name is Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. I find that people, if they just search secretly, they usually find it in their player. So that's a, that's a tip for finding it. Search for secretly. There you go. Definitely check that out. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That's pretty much the name for everything, everywhere. Uh, but most importantly, it is the name for the Patreon, where you can find all kinds of bonus episodes, including uh, we just released an episode about Doki Doki Literature club the visual novel that secretly becomes a psychological horror video game uh we also <laughs> did the uh three so me and two of my uh close friends who are big simpsons fans also there were plenty of simpsons references in this very episode we talk yeah. about our top five uh treehouse of horrors shorts from the first 10 seasons so if you're interested in the treehouse of horrors then people can go listen to that episode right now on the patreon uh so check that out for just a few bucks a month and uh, that's it for me. So check out Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. It's really great, guys. Um, and, and thanks again, Alex. Man, yeah, George, thank you. It's, it's been great to be in your uh, your corner of Philly here talking about <laughs> I, I've never gotten to talk about this movie this much. It's a treat. Hell yeah. Well, uh, thanks again. And bye, everyone.